Good to see everyone tonight. Ah, we're still hugging. That's good. Practice for heaven. That's okay. God bless. All right, can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2? 1 John 2. If you're new with us, welcome. We are currently studying 1 John here at Calvary on Wednesday nights. And as we have pointed out in previous studies, the book is a little hard to outline, but I think John may have tried to help us <laughs> because he seems to have built his epistle around four reasons for writing this, I'm calling it a love letter, to the body of Christ in general. It's got nobody named specifically it's going to. So it's a universal letter to all the body of Christ, love letter. Uh, because four times in this epistle, John says, These things I write to you, or these things I have written to you, and here are the four things. That your joy may be full, chapter 1, verse 4. That you may not sin, chapter 2, verse 1. That you be not deceived, that's a good one, chapter 2, verse 26. And that you may know you have eternal life, chapter 5, verse 13. Now, the first of these is rooted in the idea of fellowship with God and both practical and positional. Positional fellowship happened when you gave your heart to Christ or were connected to Him. That never ends and never changes. It's eternal. Practical fellowship can be broken if we don't walk with the Lord or we get into sin or sidetracked in some uh, thing that is not of God. We can break our fellowship with Him. But uh, once we are connected to Him, we are walking in close fellowship with him. It allows his attributes, because Peter tells us that when you got saved, when all of us got saved, uh, the Holy Spirit came inside and brought with him the divine nature, the nature of God. And of course, the attributes of God's divine nature then begin to grow in us because God is in us. The only way we can have these attributes, Paul called them in, a, in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. So these are the attributes of God, and certainly they can be faked. They can be counterfeited, but they, the real thing come, has to come from the Holy Spirit living inside a person. And, uh, but but as, as we abide in Christ, so of course, then uh, it allows God's divine nature to grow in us. And joy happens to be one of the things that John keys in on first. In fact, he talks about fullness of joy in chapter 1, verse 4. And uh, John tells us, or actually, let me just say that it was Jesus himself that told us, which John recorded in his gospel, chapter 15, that we need to abide in Christ if we're going to see fullness of joy, we're going to see God's love flowing through us and the other fruit of the Spirit. So it's all about abiding. And that's a, a term of fellowship, fellowship. Now, this will allow us to continue to grow in our faith and produce, as Jesus said in John 15, fruit, more fruit, and much fruit. And by this, Jesus said, all people will know you belong to me. This will bring God glory. And that is the whole goal of our Christian life. I mean, you talk to different Christians, and they have a whole different bunch of ideas about what the goal of Christianity is. A lot of it is focused on themselves. God making me rich. God prospering my business. God giving me a nice house to live in. I'm not coming against any of that. That's just not our divine right as children of God. Some think it is. That's our birthright, uh, wealth and health and so on god has chosen to give some wealth and god has chosen to give many health but that's not our divine birthright and we have to just realize that we have been called we have been saved 
to bring God glory. Now, as my pastor used to say, you will never know greater joy. You will never have a more awesome life than a life that is lived to bring God glory because the byproduct is all the fruit of the Spirit. All those things that make life really worth living, those things that are inside of a child of God when they're walking with the Lord and they're fellowshipping with Him and the Spirit is flowing. When you try to put your happiness as the primary pursuit in life, you'll never, you'll never get there. Happiness is a byproduct of bringing God glory. And that's just the, what the Bible teaches us. And so the whole goal here is that the Lord wants us to bear fruit, more fruit, and much fruit for his glory. And that is something, guys, Satan absolutely wants to keep us from doing. Satan does not want us bringing God glory at all, okay? And the only way he can keep our lives from bringing God glory is to break our fellowship with him, with God. And the only way he can do that is through temptation in the hopes that we will fall into sin. And, of course, sin will break our fellowship on a practical level with the Lord. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2 tells us that. And that will cause, once we are disconnected from the Lord, we're backslidden. What happens is, of course, the spirit in our life stops flowing. The fruit stops growing. In fact, it begins to shrivel and die. And our light goes out. And this is something John absolutely wants us to not let happen in our lives. He's adamant about it. He does not want us, after we have been saved, filled with the Spirit, growing fruit, the Lord bearing fruit through us, being a light in the darkness. He knows that the devil is going to want to do whatever he can to put the light out, to, to rip us off from our relationship with God and so on. And so it's something that John is, is really admonishing us not to let that happens. Paul says we have to understand uh, how Satan works. We're not ignorant of his devices, Paul said. The Greek word means methodologies, strategies. We have to know our enemy. Very simply, what he wants to do is keep you from getting saved. And if you already are saved, keep you from bearing any fruit and bringing God glory by getting you to fall into the world again and so on and so forth. And that's why he opens chapter 2 with the second, these things I write to you statements. Uh, in chapter 2, verse 1, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world there's a lot in those two verses we're only going to get to those tonight okay um look maybe john begins verse one of chapter two with the words i'm writing this this so that you may not sin because he has just gotten done saying that we're all going to sin at times as christians in fact he went as far as the close chapter one out with these words verse eight if we say we have no sin we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Now, in saying this, John doesn't want us to think that because you know, sin is inevitable in our lives as Christians, that we're just going to sin at times, just the way it is. He doesn't want us to say, well, if I'm going to sin anyway, uh, when I, and when I do, if I confess it to God, he'll forgive me, uh, then why not go ahead and sin? 
I mean, you know, some people think this way. John's anticipating some of the thinking, okay? I mean, Paul talked about those who say, well, if by my sinning God shows me grace and he gets glory, then let's sin all the more that grace may abound. Well, see, there are folks out there that, you know, and you, you really know where they're coming from and how they handle the scriptures. And John is saying, look, uh, yeah, I said that, this side of glory, uh, you're not going to be perfect. We, we still live in these fallen bodies. We haven't gotten our glorified body yet. Uh, when we do, of course, we'll be perfect and sinless. But until that time, I just wanted you to know that, you know, don't say, I, I never sin anymore, that I'm a Christian. That's, that's not true. But don't go to the other end of the ex extreme and say, well, look, uh, the Apostle John says, you know, we're all going to sin. It's inevitable. And since we're all going to sin, I, why even fight it? Let's just go ahead and sin. I mean, you know, obviously, if it's, and all we got to do is say we're sorry, we confess it, and God's going to forgive us, then, you know, let's go ahead and uh, let's give in to sin. I could just see the T-shirts uh, rolling off the presses, you know. They didn't have any MAGA hats back then, but maybe hats that said, you know, L-G-I-T-S. Let's give in to sin. You know, yeah, a whole group maybe. You know, John's kind of anticipating this. And uh, so that's why John, you know, quickly had to listen, man. I'm not, it's because I said no Christian's going to be sinless this side of heaven. Uh, that doesn't mean I'm telling you to take sin lightly and to give in to it as long as it's inevitable. I'm writing to you so that you don't sin. Back verse 1 again. Little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. I'm not giving you a justification for sinning. I don't want you to sin. God doesn't want you to sin. But listen, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now, we've talked about this before, but for the sake of those folks who are new or those who will be listening on the radio uh, someday, um, sin, sin. Okay, these things I write to you that you may not sin. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. The word sin is a Greek word that literally means to miss the mark. To miss the mark. As we have said in the past, it was an archery term for hitting the bullseye on a target. Paul the Apostle said in Romans 3.23, all have sinned. All have missed the mark. Of course, the next question is, what does the mark or the bullseye represent? Well, Paul tells us it represents the glory of God. The glory of God. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You say, well, what is the glory of God? God's glory is his perfection. So we've all fallen short of God's perfection. You say, yes, but in regard, with regard to what? The perfection that Paul is referring to in Romans 3 is perfectly keeping God's righteous standards as set forth in his divine law. In the Old Testament, God's law contains 613 commandments. To break any one of them was to miss the mark, or in other words, to sin, and that would cause a person to be guilty before God. Now, let's not deal with all 613, okay? Let's just limit ourselves to the 10 we're most familiar with, the 10 commandments. And by the way, they're commandments, not suggestions, okay? Today, I'm... Shocked that people don't interpret it that way at times. But these commandments, guys, and we've talked about this, are like the wooden boards that make up the hull of a boat. All right? It doesn't matter if most of these boards are there. Say there's 10 of them. 
like the Ten Commandments. Ten boards that make up the hull of this boat. It doesn't matter if most of them are there. If even one is missing or is broken, that ship is sunk. It's going under. The same is true for the person who chooses to try to get to heaven by living a moral life by keeping the commandments of God. It doesn't matter. And this is where people miss it today. They are, Really, they don't understand. It doesn't matter if a person keeps most of the commandments of God. I'm going to try to get to heaven. I'm going to get to heaven by keeping the commandments of God. Okay, great. How you doing? Well, I'm keeping most of them. See, it doesn't work that way. You know? It's like, you know, how's your boat doing? How's the hull doing? You've been working on it. Yeah, well, I'm missing a couple boards. But I got most of them there. We're going to launch it anyways. Well, okay. Uh, you're not getting too far. And uh, But again, person that, that's their thinking um, that, well, I keep most of them. Look, if any commandment is, is broken, even once, well, again, that person is sunk, condemned. In fact, James takes it a little farther and says in James 2, verse 10, For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point is guilty of all. Boy, if that doesn't demoralize a person who's trying to get to heaven by keeping commandments, I don't know what will. James is saying, look, you can keep all the commandments. And he might have been thinking about the whole 613. I don't know. If you break one, you're, you're, you're done. You're condemned. And that's why Paul calls the law a curse. Galatians 3, verses 10 and 13. It's because it makes salvation, listen, dependent upon a person keeping all of it without fail. You want to get to heaven by your good works, keeping commandments, you better keep all of them perfectly your entire life. And by the way, it's not all outward stuff. Jesus talked about sins of the heart, the lust, the murder, and the heart, and so on. Those are just as sinful in the eyes of God. I think we could say very simply then that the law demands moral perfection from a person to gain access into heaven. And yet when I go out and I've talked to people over the years and asked them a simple question, well, if you die tonight, uh, would, would God let you into heaven? You know, I, the way I phrase it is, you know, look, if you were to die tonight and um, you stood before God and he asked you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? You think he'd let you in? Yeah, I think he'd let me in. Why? What would you say to him? Why do you think he'd let you in? I say, they say, well, because I'm a good person. I'm a good person, right? I'm not perfect, but I still think I'm good enough to get into heaven. But listen again to what God is saying in his word. If you're not morally perfect, you're not good enough to get into heaven. Guys, it's all. It's perfection or nothing. It, there is no good. I'm good enough or I'm better than most uh, idea here. It's either sinless perfection or eternal rejection, hell. You see, we have a different way of defining goodness than God does. And when people say, well, I think God let me into heaven because I'm a good person, they don't understand how God defines goodness. Remember in Matthew 19, where Jesus basically said, look, no one is good but God. And the idea is no one is morally perfect but God. That's how God defines goodness, moral perfection. Again, Romans 3.23, Paul said, All have sinned, all have missed the mark, and fall short of the glory of God, fall short of sinless perfection. In Romans 6.23, the wages of sin, any sin, is death. And it's eternal death, uh, separation from God, hell for eternity. 
So guys, without Jesus dying in our place, we'd be sunk, to use our earlier metaphor, hopelessly lost. Hopelessly lost. Because none of us could live a sinless life here on the earth. And let me just say it this way. <laughs> we, we were done before we, once we were born, we were still, you know, in that little bassinet or whatever we were in. We were already done because we were born with original sin in our soul. Okay? So even if you could, in some stretch of the imagination, live a perfect life, you were born a sinner. We were all born in sin. We were all doomed to spend eternity in hell. And that's where Jesus came in. If he didn't come down and die in our place, none of us could ever get to heaven. We would all be condemned to spend eternity in hell. Because Jesus didn't come to save good people. There are people who are harboring under this idea, well, I'm a good person and I just need a little boot. And I'm trying to climb the wall of salvation. And I'm, I'm almost there and I just need Jesus to give me a little push over the top. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't say that God, Jesus came to save good people, quote-unquote. It, it says that he came to save sinners. And if a person doesn't acknowledge that, doesn't realize they're, well, first of all, if a person doesn't acknowledge they're a sinner, they're never going to see their need for a Savior. And that's why when we present the gospel, oftentimes we like to start with questions like, you know, have you ever lied? Have you ever stole anything? Have you ever lusted after a person? We're using the law to convict them. As Paul said, that was the job of the law of God, to bring conviction, to show us our sin. And when we've done this, as we've witnessed, uh, you know, I, I had one experience with a group of young people. We were out uh, at uh, an outside mall here in the area, and I, I saw about four or five young people there. And, you know, it's outside mall, and there's coffee, and there's ice cream. And it's a nice summer day and evening. And so I went up to this group and I said, look, uh, uh, would you mind if I talk to you about uh, the Lord? I'll ask you a few questions about God. That's how I put it. Okay. And they're looking at me like, who is this guy? You know, and they're smirking, you know, and like, you know, who's, okay, fine, you know. And uh, I said, oh, great. You know, so I said, look, um, uh, you know, if, if you were to die tonight, do you believe God will let you into heaven? And they all said, yes. Most people do. Okay. And, well, why? Well, we're good. I'm a good person, they all said. Okay. Um, well, let me ask you this. Have you ever stolen anything? Maybe a piece of gum when you were a kid? Well, yeah. What does that make you? A thief? Have you ever lied? No. Who's going to say, I've never lied? You're lying right there. <laughs> they all say, yeah, well, I've lied. Well, then what is, the Bible says you're a liar. Have you ever lusted after somebody else? Well, sure. Uh, Jesus said that's to commit adultery or fornication in the heart. So, you know, Giving the, given this kind of understanding, when you stand before God, do you think he would say you were a good person or a guilty person? Well, probably a guilty person. Do you think he let you into heaven? I have to send you to hell. Well, I think and they're all now. It's amazing. This was I remember this time because they were all kind of joking and smirking and you know you know. By the time I got to this point, you should have saw the looks on their faces. It had dawned on them. I'm not a good person at all. And I'm going to be sent to hell. I said, was that bother you? Well, yeah. Well, then I've got good news. God, Jesus came down so you wouldn't have to go to hell. And I shared the gospel. But it's just amazing that we live in a culture where so many people have been brainwashed into thinking they're good people. And, of course, good people make it into heaven. We're not perfect, but certainly good enough. 
They don't understand that to get into heaven, you have to be perfect. When Jesus told this to his disciples, their jaws hit the floor. And they said, well, then who can possibly be saved? This is all again in Matthew 19. Jesus said, with men it is what? Very hard, but keep trying? It's impossible. It's impossible. And that was designed to bring them to that realization for them to then say, well, if I can't make it by my good works, is there another way? Ah, yes, Jesus would say. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father, to heaven, except through me. That's the gospel, okay? But Paul said, you know, we, you know he, the Bible says we must acknowledge our sin. Because otherwise we think we're good people and we just need Jesus to help us a little bit. Paul the Apostle said, 1 Timothy 1.15, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to say what? Good people? Sinners. Of whom I am chief. Turn back to 1 John 2. John said, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, guys, here in these verses, and again, we, we sometimes speed read our Bibles. That's, that's a mistake. Don't do that. But here in these verses, John uses two words that describe two vital aspects of the ministry of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Two ministries that only he could fulfill and perform. These two very important words are advocate and propitiation. Advocate and propitiation. Let's take the second word first, propitiation. Now the dictionary tells us that propitiation means to appease someone who is angry. To appease someone who is angry. Now, if you apply that definition to the concept of biblical redemption, it means that Jesus died in Calvary's cross to appease an angry, red-eyed, fire-breathing God who was about to lose it and just destroy the whole world full of sinners until Jesus stepped forward, went to the cross, and appeased him with his own blood. That's how a lot of people see God. Because that's not the God of the Bible, nor a proper picture of salvation. It is true that God hates sin because he's infinitely holy and righteous. But it's also true that God loves sinners. I don't even have to have you turn to John 3.16. You all know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish in hell but have everlasting life. Notice that John said doesn't say God was kind of fond of the world. Uh, he has good days and bad days with the world. But you know, overall, he's kind of, kind of fond of sinners. Now, he said God so loved the world, so loved, that he gave his only begotten son to die on Calvary's cross to save these fallen sinners, us, from his eternal judgment in hell, which he has to punish sin because he's a holy and righteous God. Now, guys, the word propitiation does not mean the appeasing of an angry God. Rather, it means 
the location or place where sins are forgiven and God's righteousness is satisfied. A lot in that one word. Uh, we don't have a word in English that matches it. So we have to define it using numerous words. But it doesn't mean appeasing an angry God. It means the location or place where sins are forgiven and God's righteousness is satisfied. Turn to Psalm 85. I think we just read this little scripture, uh, Good Friday or um, Easter Sunday, I can't remember. Um, but I love it because it's just, it's very powerful. Psalm 85, verse 10. The psalmist said, Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. Now, uh, when we taught this, I think it was for Good Friday, we said that this verse contains the problem of the ages. The problem of the ages, which the psalmist outlined for us very succinctly. Mercy and truth have met together. Of course, one of the cosmic problems of the age is how can God show mercy to fallen man by not sending him to hell and still be faithful to his truth, the truth in his word, the soul that sins shall surely die. How can God show mercy to a guilty sinner? Won't that fly in the face of his justice? Righteousness and peace of kiss. How can a righteous God ever make peace with unrighteous sinners so as to have peace with them or fellowship? Now, of course, the answer is the cross, which John is, is no doubt got in mind when he says in verse 2, Jesus himself is the propitiation for our sins. Or in other words, guys, he, he himself is the place, drawing on the biblical definition of propitiation, Jesus is the place where God's holy law was satisfied and man's sin was forgiven. He is the place? What does that mean? Well, to fully understand and appreciate what John is saying, we need to understand how sin was atoned for and God's righteousness was satisfied in the Old Testament period. When a Jew back, this is very familiar stuff, so I, you know, I'm not going to belabor it, but when a Jew back then sinned, God had instructed that they were to bring their animal sacrifice to the priest, first at the tabernacle, then later the temple, where the priest would offer the sacrifice on the brazen altar of sacrifice to God to make atonement for their sin. Listen, so that their fellowship with God could be restored again. It was always about fellowship, guys. This is what we tried to, to, to hit on this epistle. It really is all about fellowship with God. That is the goal of redemption. Not just to keep us from going to hell, it was a nice byproduct, but the goal of redemption was to have fellowship with, for God to bring fallen man back into the place he originally made for him to occupy in sweet oneness and fellowship, communion with God Almighty. So that's why God instituted the sacrificial system that when a Jew committed sin, God instructed what animal to bring, brought it to the priest, it was offered on the, uh, uh, the altar of sacrifice, uh, and God's uh, righteousness was appeased, the, the sacrifice, the blood atoned for that person's sin, and that allowed this person to be reconnected to God once again in the sense of having fellowship. However, there, were always, there was always the problem of sins that were never atoned for, many unknown or forgotten sins which would accumulate over the course of the whole year. Talk about a whole nation now, okay? Uh, obviously, there were many unknown or forgotten sins that would accumulate throughout the year for which no sacrifice had been made. God, no, God didn't just overlook them or sweep them under the rug. They had to be dealt with. 
And so to deal with those sins, God established a national day of atonement called Yom Kippur, which literally means the day of covering, when their sins were covered. This was a day when all unknown, forgotten, or unatoned for sins could be covered and forgiven. And if you were a very strong Jew, Orthodox Jew, it was a great day of liberation for your conscience. You can read about this in Leviticus 16. The Israelites knew that whatever sins they may have missed, overlooked, didn't realize they had committed throughout the year, would now be taken care of. The slate would be wiped completely clean, at least symbolically for a while. But Yom Kippur was something every devout Jew really looked forward to every year, the devout Jews. Because it was a time of release from the guilt of sin and relief. The guilt was gone because the sins were forgiven. Now it was on this day, guys, and only on this day, Yom Kippur, that the high priest and only the high priest could enter the revered Holy of Holies. Of course, whether you're talking about the tabernacle, which was a smaller version of the temple, the same basic layout. You had the uh, tabernacle proper, the tent, or the, or the temple proper, the building, and you would walk through the door, and you would be in the, a first compartment called the holy place, and the priest would always be in and out of this first compartment. Uh, on the, to the right, you had a small golden table called the table of showbread. To the left, there was the only light source in the uh, structure, the menorah. And right ahead, you had a small golden altar that they would burn incense on that stood right in front of a veil. Now, the priest would come and go for, into this first compartment all the time. But they would never pass through the veil into the second compartment the Holy of Holies, or the Most Holy Place. Only the high priest could do that, and only once a year on the day of Yom Kippur, and then after many washings, many sacrifices, and so on. And we've talked about, even then, he wasn't sure that when he walked into the Holy of Holies that he wouldn't be struck dead because of some sin he harbored in his heart, didn't realize. And so they would, of course, sew bells in the bottom of the high priest's robe and tie a, a rope around his ankle. And, of course, the idea was uh, if he walked into the Holy of Holies and hadn't dealt with his sin completely, God would strike him dead. And, and you wouldn't want, you know, how would you know that? Because you wouldn't want to go in there and say, hey, how's it going? You know, and you'd be wiped out, all right? So the idea was you know, listen, they'd listen outside, you know, and they're in that first compartment listening, right? And they're hearing a tinkle, 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 and he's walking around, okay, you know. And all of a sudden the tinkling stopped and you heard a thud, uh-oh. Just, just, just take the rope and pull the guy out. So it was not a fun job. You were the high priest. Everyone else, oh, I can't wait for the feast of Yom Kippur so I could just get all this guilt off my, you know. Well, the high priest is like, well, yeah, well, you're, I'm glad you're happy about it. And I'm going in there. I don't know if I'm coming out. Well, I'm coming out one way or the other. I'm not sure I'm walking out, okay? But upon entering the Holy of Holies, the high priest would stand before the Ark of the Covenant. Now, and we've talked about this, but the Ark of the Covenant was made up of two separate pieces. The lower box and the lid that went on top of that box. The bottom box measured 3 foot 9 inches long by 2 foot 3 inches wide, 2 foot 3 inches high. And originally it held three items. And uh, Hebrews 9.4 confirms what these items were. But originally 
it held the two tablets of stone upon which God wrote the Ten Commandments. And then you had a pot of gold that contained some of the manna that fell for 40 years in the wilderness. That was inside. And then you had Aaron's rod that had budded in the confrontation with Korah, right? Those were three things that were in the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant. And um, this box was uh, covered with gold inside and out and topped with a lid made of pure gold called the mercy seat. Now, the top, on top of the mercy seat, there were cherubim, two angels, one at each end of the mercy seat, facing each other with their heads bowed and their wings outstretched upward and nearly touching tip to tip right above the mercy seat. It was uh, on that mercy seat between the cherubim that uh, God was symbolically understood to dwell. It was his throne on the earth. The lid was called the mercy seat because on the day of atonement, the high priest entered the Holy of Holies and sprinkled the blood of the sacrifice upon the mercy seat. And this was intended to atone for all the sins of ignorance that had been committed by God's people on a national level, which then allowed God to show mercy to them as a nation. Now, one additional comment. If you study the tabernacle in the temple, you will quickly see that there was no seat or chair in either. The reason was, the reason there was no chair was because the priest's work, listen, was never finished, and so they never sat. They would just keep doing their thing, and then another, the next group of priests would come on to do their watch or whatever they, you know, and uh, they rotated, of course, and so, so they would just work constantly offering the sacrifices. No chair in the tabernacle or temple because the priest never sat down. And uh, the reason for that was because the blood of animals could never take away sins. All they could do was temporarily cover sin, and that's why it's called Yom Kippur, the day of covering. The blood of goats and bulls, Paul tells us in Hebrews, could never take away sin. Only Jesus Christ, our great high priest, could do that. So again, this is why the priest never sat down. They never did until Jesus Christ, our great high priest, offered himself for our sins. He was the Lamb of God whose blood didn't just, again, cover sin temporarily until the next time yeah, that, that was the problem with the Old Covenant. I mean, you bring an animal to atone for your sins, and you're walking back home, and somebody did something to aggravate you, and you did something foolish, and it's, oh, man, i got to go back and offer, you know. And, and that's how it was. They kept having to offer these sacrifices because these things never took away. They only temporarily covered them to the next sin. But here comes Jesus, the Lamb of God, whose blood didn't just cover it took completely away our sins which meant that his work was done as he himself stated on the cross in 19, John 19 verse 30 he said it is finished it is finished in fact Paul in Hebrews 1 verse 3 makes it a point to talk about how Christ sat down after he offered himself he said in upholding all things by the word of his power when he had by himself purged our sins on Calvary's cross, he then sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, at his Father's right hand, because it was over. Jesus doesn't need to keep dying for our sins. And Paul anticipated this in Romans. Well, how could the blood of one man atone for everybody's sin? I mean, it took thousands and thousands of animals throughout the year to be to be killed, to atone for sins. You're telling us 
that Jesus Christ died once for all and, and his blood completely atoned for how was that possible for everybody to be atoned by the blood of one man and Paul says well was everybody condemned by one man Adam if everybody in the world was condemned by Adam sin why can't Jesus Christ the the last Adam the greater than Adam not lay down his life and have it atoned for everyone in the world look we uh, looked at the uh, tabernacle uh, in our exodus study we said that every piece of furniture in the tabernacle, the menorah, the table of showbread, the golden altar, etc., everything in and about the tabernacle pointed to Jesus in some way. And this was especially true for the mercy seat. The words mercy seat in Hebrews 9.5 and propitiation in 1 John 2 verse 2 are the same word in the Greek, which means that Jesus is our mercy seat. He is our propitiation. He is the place where sin is forgiven. The place where God's righteousness is satisfied through the blood of our Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. Now guys, the second word that John uses to describe the work and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ is the word advocate. Advocate. Look at 1 John 2.1 again. He said, My little children... These things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And uh, he's the perfectly righteous is the idea. One. Uh, the Greek word for advocate is uh, parakletos in the Greek. And it comes from two Greek words, para, which means alongside, and kaleo, the verb to call. So a parakletos is literally one who was called alongside to help. It happens to be the very same word Jesus used when he promised his disciples the night before his crucifixion that he would not leave them alone like orphans. He would send to them another helper, that is the word parakletos, who would come alongside them to listen, help, comfort, and give them power to do the work that Jesus Christ himself had begun. Are you going to tell me that you're going to send a group of fishermen, farmers, blue-collar guys, Go into all the world and preach the gospel? You mean Athens? Alexandria? Rome? The, the greater centers of learning and culture on the planet? And I'm from Galilee? I've been raising you know, goats my whole life or fishing? And I'm going to go to these places and talk to the intelligentsia? And, and, and how am I going to do that? I'm not going to leave you to go on your own strength. The same power that was in me to preach the gospel is going to be in you. Go back to Jerusalem and wait until you're endued with power from on high. And when you are, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and under the uttermost ends of the earth through the power that God will give to you to do the work I have begun. You're going to be taking over. In John's day, guys, the word advocate was used of an attorney who would come alongside a person who had been charged with a crime to defend them in a court of law. Now look, Jesus' work is our propitiation. is done. He said it was finished on the cross when he died in our place and satisfied the Father's righteous standard. It's done. So that work is over. It's done. It's finished. But when Jesus ascended back to his Father in heaven, he began another work on our behalf as our great high priest. He is now in heaven as our advocate, and again, think of attorney for the defense, 
who was defending us before God, the Father's throne. And you say, well, who is he defending us against? He's defending us against the accuser of the brethren, Revelation 12, verse 10. That Greek word accuser, and by the way, that's what Satan means, accuser. Uh, but that Greek word was, could also, was also used as a, uh, a prosecuting attorney. Satan is trying to prosecute us to get us pronounced guilty by the Father. Jesus Christ is our attorney for the defense. You see, and I'll just explain it to you the way my pastor did. I don't think you can improve on this, but he said, imagine that... Jesus is in heaven by the Father's throne, and Satan is there, and my name comes up. And Satan comes forward and says, now, uh, you know, Lord, uh, that guy Ballmeyer down there, he, uh, you know, you know, he, uh, you know, he just did something bad, okay? He, he lost his temper on the expressway and said some bad stuff. And so he's guilty, right, God? Right? And Jesus steps forward and says, Step aside. Father, don't listen to that. My blood has covered that sin. And so the Father, you know, case dismissed. You're never going to lose when you have an attorney whose father is the judge. All right? We got it wired. We got it wired. All right? Turn to Hebrews 4, because there's other things our great high priest does on our behalf. Hebrews 4. Starting with verse 15, again, I think Paul wrote Hebrews. I could be wrong, but all right. Paul said, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, listen, yet without sin. So Jesus was tempted. We know he was tempted powerfully by the devil for those 40 days he was fasting at the beginning of his ministry. Then, of course, in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before the cross, he was tempted. It was, he was sweating drops of blood, okay? Uh, and, and Paul is saying, look, we have a high priest that understands what it's like to be tempted, but he never sinned. He's sinless. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So if you're a Jewish person and you heard that for the first time, I, I imagine it would have passed out. I can go into the Holy of Holies. Are you crazy? Only the high priest can go in there only once a year. Are you telling me I can just go boldly in there? What are you, nuts? Yeah, because Jesus already paid the price. He's got it all covered. And we can go into the presence of God now boldly because God tells us come in boldly. We're his kids now. We can come in and say, Father, I'm having a hard time with this or that. I need a lot of grace and mercy to help in this situation, you know. And Jesus says, that's okay, you can do that. And you will receive what you need to live the life I'm calling you to live. But then turn to Hebrews 7, verse 23. Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, Jesus, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost to save all the way to glory. Jesus Christ has never lost one person. Anybody who has ever put their faith in him, and he has got them, okay? He's holding on tight. He's never lost one. Never lost one. 
he is able to save all the way to the end, to glory, to the uttermost. Those who come to God through him, listen, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now you read that, and I don't know, maybe you don't think about it too much. You just continue on. But guys, this is one of the most blessed verses in the Bible, right up there with John 3.16. It's not as well known, but the impact of what is being said is every bit as powerful. What this verse is teaching us, John 3.16 says, God so loved us, he gave his son to die for us. Okay? But right here in Hebrews 7.25, Paul is saying that once a person gives their heart to Christ and becomes born again, now Jesus in heaven has as his ministry to bring every sin that we commit now that we're saved, that Satan tries to accuse us and get the Father to condemn us over, Jesus keeps interceding. He keeps interceding. And based on what? Based on his blood that keeps cleansing. Isn't that how Peter basically started this? Excuse me, John? And the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, continually cleanses us from all unrighteousness? It's the same basic idea. What Jesus did in the past, and it's in the perfect tense in the Greek, which means an act that took place in the past that has the effects that are continuing to the present. Jesus died 2,000 years ago on Calvary's cross, but that one act continues today, offering salvation to anybody who puts their faith in him. And once we do, his blood continues to cleanse us. He doesn't have to keep being crucified. He was crucified once, just like we don't have to keep getting saved. Once you give your heart to Christ, his blood continues to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And so when Jesus steps before the Father, when Satan accuses us, he says, Father, don't, don't even listen to that. Their sin is under my blood. And that's how we can be guaranteed that once we get saved, we will be saved all the way to the uttermost, to, to glory. Nobody falls through the cracks. Jesus said in John 10, I got you in my hand. My father's got you in his hand. We got you both, you know, we got both of us have you in our, there's no way you're slipping through. Nobody ever wiggled through the fingers. Barnhouse said that's because you are a finger. You're the body of Christ. Oh, but I can slip through one of his fingers. You don't know me. I can, I can sin still. I'm, you know, no, you can't because you are one of his fingers, he said. All right. There's one final statement I want to look at and we'll close. The statement that John makes at the end of verse 2. He says, you know, he himself is the propitiation for our sins. Listen, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world is the idea. Now, I believe, guys, that what John is saying is that Jesus' death on the cross didn't just satisfy God's righteousness for a small group of people known as the elect but for every person who would ever live. Now, by saying that, I'm not saying that every person in the world is automatically saved because Jesus died for their sins. That's universalism. We don't believe that, okay? What I'm saying, what the Bible is saying, is that every person in the world can be saved if they want to be. The payment has been made, and uh, all anyone has to do to go to heaven is to believe on Jesus Christ and to receive God's gift of eternal life by faith. 
John chapter 1, verse 12, and other places. Now, guys, this goes against the Calvinist doctrine of limited atonement, or the L in their acronym, TULIP. Calvinists and Reformed folks do not believe that Jesus' blood atoned for the sins of the whole world. They believe that his blood only atoned for the sins of the elect. And Calvinists interpret 1 John 2, verse 2 this way. This is how they would recite it, teach it. He himself is the propitiation for our sins. John was an apostle. He's talking about the apostles. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Or in other words, the whole world of the elect. Or the elect scattered throughout the world. So Jesus' blood was the propitiation for us apostles. We're saved. We're the elect. And also for the rest of the elect sprinkled throughout the world. But only the elect. Only the elect, they say. They do the same thing with other verses that universally call all men and women to Christ to be saved, and yet they interpret those verses to only be speaking about the elect. I'll just give you two. Again, John 3.16, we know it. Here's how they interpret it. For God so loved the world of the elect that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever of the elect believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. John 12, verse 32, Jesus said, And if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all peoples to myself. And they say, well, all different peoples from all over the world that God has elected to salvation. So it's not all in the sense of all people on the face of the earth. It's all the elect scattered throughout the earth. Now look, I categorically and vehemently disagree with those interpretations and with the whole idea of limited atonement, in fact, you could toss into the whole TULIP acronym. I don't believe in any of it. I believe that when Jesus said, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself, he meant all people. All people. I believe that Jesus was clearly saying that after his crucifixion, he would, through the Holy Spirit, draw all the peoples on earth to himself. They're not all going to respond, but the Spirit is moving and drawing people. In other words, he is, he is saying that, that salvation would be available to everyone on planet Earth. And that anyone, and he talks about this in John 6, but anyone who came to him for salvation would never be turned away. It's never happened that somebody has come to Christ for salvation, you know, come to the Father and said, God, I want to receive your Son. I want to be saved. And the father has looked at the list and said, oh, I'm sorry, you're not on the, the elect list. I'm sorry, you know, I uh, can't do it. Jesus said, anyone who comes to me by faith, I will never cast out, turn away. Let's just turn to Romans 10 and we'll close. Salvation is not a hard concept. And um, to receive it is very simple. That's why a child can do it, all right? But Paul said very clearly in Romans 10, starting with verse 9, he said, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, 
and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Verse 12, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord, the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. Verse 13, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, if you want to plug in there, whoever of the elect calls on the name of the Lord is going to be saved, that's up to you. I just like to read my Bible as simply as I know how. I mean, obviously, there are things that we can't take at face value. They're not meant to be literal. Like God's going to protect us under the shadow of his wings. He's not Big Bird, okay? <laughs> Jesus, I am the door. He's not made out of wood. There's obviously places in the Bible where God is speaking allegorically. But I think when it comes to salvation, he's speaking directly. And he is saying that I love all the fallen sinners of this world. I have sent my son to die for every one of them. His blood shed in Calvary's cross was enough to satisfy my righteous standards. He is the mercy seat. And he sprinkled his own blood on himself, in a sense, as the propitiation, the mercy seat, so that anybody who comes to my son by faith, the Father would say, is going to have eternal life. Jesus Christ, if he be lifted up, he said, I will draw all people to myself. Now, I just take that to mean all people. Some say, well, all people that are elected. I just... The, the Calvinist in me, we believe in the same Lord. We, we believe in the same gospel. It's the scope of who can be saved we differ on. They believe only a small group called the elect can get saved. I believe anybody in the world can get saved based on what the scriptures teach. And whether you know it or not, your concept, what interpretation you have when you approach these scriptures is going to impact the way you see God and the love of God. Because listen, you say, well, you know, but God is all loving. You try to tell the Calvinist, yes, well, he's all loving to the elect. So then you start thinking, well, if God is not loving to everybody, maybe he's not loving to me. Maybe these problems I've been going through is because God doesn't really love me. Maybe I'm not one of the elect. You can't believe how many Christians after they've gotten saved and then hooked into some of this Calvinist teaching, have gone off the rails. Because they're now, well, what, I, I prayed to receive Christ, but I don't know if I'm one of the elect. They've had nervous breakdowns. I'm not kidding you. I've, I've known some of these people. It's just so better to just have a childlike faith and say, and read, if God loves the whole world, he loves the whole world. If Jesus died for the sins of the whole world, he died for the sins of the whole world. If he is lifted up, he's going to draw all people to himself. He meant all people. In fact, in heaven, I, there's going to be people from every tribe, nation, tongue, and language around the throne. Now you can say, oh yeah, but they were all the elect. Well, I, I, I disagree. I think salvation is available to anybody. Who wants it? God doesn't force it on anybody. But if he, he's drawing you, you can resist the Holy Spirit. Didn't Stephen nail the Jewish people with that in Acts 7? You do always resist the Holy Spirit. Calvinists say you can't resist the Holy Spirit. Stephen, 
filled with the Holy Spirit said, you do always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, now so do you. You can resist God's Spirit. God's not going to force you into heaven. But if you want to be there, he is inviting you to come. We'll continue next time and uh, looking at some more of the things John brings up because they're pretty phenomenal. Father, we thank you for your word and the light that you give us as we study your word. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came down because of your great love from heaven, came down to save us, died in the cross that we might be saved to have forgiveness of sins. Give us grace, Lord, to never take that lightly or for granted and to offer it, Lord, to everybody we come in contact with because uh, it's available to sinners everywhere. We just thank you, Lord. Father, we ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.